people are so entrenched at the moment in their particular views on the food system and we all need to get out of our trenches like like on no man's land in christmas day and play a bit of friendly football understand where other people are coming from because actually when you talk to people from different areas they often disagree on a tiny fraction five percent of what they think and they spend their lives gouging each other's eyes out over that rather than trying to understand and learn from each other in a a more constructive way hello and welcome to feed and flourish the bite-sized podcast series from the closest forum with me hannah mckinnis in this series i'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Hi, I'm Henry Dimbleby. I am the co-founder of Leon Restaurants, and also at the time the COVID crisis hit, was working on a national food strategy for the government. Since the crisis hit, I spent much of my time, my team has been uh, moved on to work on food security, ensuring that food is coming into the country in the mainstream and we're all able to eat, and also how to get food to the more vulnerable in society. Uh, And I've also been spending a lot of time with my charity, Chefs in Schools, thinking about how we in Hackney and more broadly in London, can ensure that those on free school meals can eat well during the crisis. So uh, as with everyone, the uh, the crisis has brought a, a complete pivot in, in what I was up to before and after it. I certainly want to come back to the current crisis and to what we're learning from it and what we might take away from it for the future. But just to take a step back for the moment, can I ask you, with your various hats on, what to your mind are the main problems looking at our food systems, our food supply systems, and particularly, of course, with regard to the effect they have on biodiversity and to the environment and the health of the planet? Sure. So I think to understand the problem with the food system, you have to understand where it came from, which was a a terror after the war Uh, that looking at the growth rates of the global population, we weren't going to be able to feed everyone. And indeed, that combined with very recent experience of an immediate crisis in the food system in the form of the downing of, uh, of ships in the North Atlantic. And so all of our efforts went into increasing productivity, increasing supply. Through the work of Norman Borlaug, we managed not only to map the the food production with the increase in the population but actually exceed it from the same pretty much the same area of land it was a a major triumph but as is always the case often the case when you fix one problem it creates other problems and i think that those problems are now not only well documented but also actually accepted Uh, which is important across the political spectrum as some of the big problems that our society faces at the moment. And those are the fact that the food increasingly that we are eating is making us sick. The fact that those extraordinary innovations 
uh, of Norman Borlaug and other scientists, we now realize that that agricultural revolution has denuded our wildlife, has destroyed biodiversity, and that there's an urgent need to not only restore but enhance that national that that natural capital. And then finally, there's the question of food security. So we were before this crisis uh, looking forward into a world of unstable geopolitics and climate change and asking in that context whether our current food system was basically secure. Could England, the UK, guarantee that it could could feed itself? And, And that third question, interestingly, is the one that is most affected by the current crisis. The other two issues, they'll be changed a little bit and our our understanding of them will be changed. But the food security question, obviously, has been at the forefront of this crisis in terms of people thinking about the food chain. Yes, I mean, obviously, until recently, many of us, many people who are fortunate enough have got used to a way of life in which you can have what you want when you want Regardless of whether it's in season, you can import fruits and vegetables from all over the world. Suddenly, an inability to have everything at your fingertips is brought sharply into focus by this current crisis. Do you think we should have been looking and that we should look to have a much more localised food system? And do you think there's a sense in which we should be using some elements of this crisis almost as a blueprint for how we should behave and for systems that we should put in place going forward? Well, interestingly, um, I think one of the big issues coming out of this crisis will be that people will think that is it is every crisis, and so people will try and you know the, the classic saying that the great mistakes people make is after a war to prepare for the previous war rather than the next one, and there's a very good chance that our global food system will actually be quite secure, will come out having fared quite well in this food crisis. Uh, There are, you know, real issues and things like the short straits uh, are a great concern if they go down the the straits between Dover and Calais, where a large amount of our food comes in and out. But the nature of the COVID crisis is like um, the kind of, it's a very local bombing of society in... Uh, very local areas in the epicenters. It shuts down all activity in those epicenters. And so its effect on activity is actually to to hit the the more local businesses much, much harder. So if you look at my sector, restaurants, uh, we've been effectively been shut down. We've been obliterated because we can't sell our food to anyone else except for people who come into the restaurant or are local. And I worry that we'll never recover. But actually... Systems where you have both global supply and global customers have been the most resilient. So there's a risk that people will say, well, look, after this crisis, the food system held up pretty well. We not only continued eating, but we continued eating uh, the variety of pretty much the variety of foods that we've always been used to. And that's it. Nothing to see here. And if you think about a climate crisis uh, on the food system and the pressures that that would put on the food system, It's a completely different kind of pressure because a climate crisis would exhibit itself if it came to pass in the failure, the mass failure of harvest. So if in one year, for example, you got a failure of the harvest in China and in in Russia, 
that would put a very different stress on the food system. And so I think that in terms of the, and I'll come to answer your question about local. So I think in terms of the um, the food system, what this this crisis will do to our think about the food system, it will help us, I think, think about more about real existential threats, but there's a risk that it makes us focus just on this particular kind of threat. So what does that mean for local food? There are two uh, clear lessons so far that one can glean from this crisis. One is that surplus is a good thing. So when you are expecting the unexpected shocks, to have something in reserve is a good thing. And our current food system, accepting that we're wasting and eating too much, isn't built to have things in reserve. So if you look at wanting a surplus, like wanting some slack in the system, a surplus actually in the food world looks like food waste. So you either just have warehouses with long life stored food in there, or you can grow more in this country but export that abroad so that when you need it, uh, you can have it in this country. But then export in this country is tricky because our, our, our land prices are very high and, the, and the, the pound floats and our major customers Europe, and that's problematic. So I think that the answer to this is diversity of food systems and where and how the state intervenes to uh, subsidize, because by definition, you have to subsidize diversity because otherwise you get just the most financially efficient thing, which we know is disastrous, and support those systems is, is a very complicated question. And then coming out of that, the other big concern at the moment in this crisis for me is that diversity. So a friend of mine from the FT, a journalist, was was saying that when they looked at the Amazon and Deliveroo acquisition, which was let through by the competition authorities, having been previously blocked, was saying, well, of course, they're going to let it through because Amazon and Deliveroo are the two companies that we need more than any other at the moment. We'll think about diversity. We'll think about monopolies when we've got through this. And I do think that one of the things that's going to happen through this crisis is there will be a mass destruction of uh, smaller companies and diversity, and there'll be a greater concentration of power in larger companies. And part of the recovery work will have to be thinking about how you increase that diversity. And an example of where that uh, concentration is a real problem comes from Smithfield in the States. So Smithfield is one of the big meat producers in the States. And most of your listeners will probably have seen that they've now had to close three of their plants because they've had mass COVID outbreaks amongst their workers. Three Smithfield plants provide 20% of the pork meat to the US. So that is a really good example of if you have these very efficient systems with large nodes that do a lot, they are incredibly efficient and financially uh, efficient, but they're vulnerable to attack. And if they go down, it causes real problems. So coming out of this, I think that that diversity question is going to be a big question. And now, or before the crisis, did you do you think that governments are ready to take these sorts of issues seriously? I know that you've questioned in the past whether our government really has a grip on these things, whether they understand the reality, the urgency, the importance of addressing issues related to food systems and food supply systems. Do you think they're listening? Well, interestingly, before this crisis, I was uh, 
really optimistic about two things. So one was ELMS, the Environmental Land Management Scheme, and the idea that you switch the £3.4 billion of government subsidy that's being paid just to produce food to public good and environmental benefits. And that is still the intention of the government. And if that is done right, it, it will be transformational. There are a thousand different ways in which you could do it, given the current legislation. Um, and so it still needs to be implemented properly. But it's a very positive development. The second, through the phrase levelling up, is uh, the understanding that our society has become too unequal uh, and that that is a major problem. And it's not good enough just to say uh, GDP increases actually make the least affluent a little bit richer. The difference in wealth is important. And on those two things, I think on the first, it is still the government's intention to do that. In fact, they're, you know, they're pushing through designing elms. But clearly, when you have a much more fragile economy, there will be much more concern about changing systems because you might, when you might have change, you have winners and losers. And the losers in, in Elms are like, there'll be smaller farms who aren't good at thinking about how to pivot towards collecting money for public goods for doing environmental things. So not the, not the kind of traditional organic people or those people, but the farms who've been conventional farmers but are small. So there will be nervousness about that transition, I think. And then on the levelling up, what is clear now from treasury models across the world is that this crisis is going to fall harder on the less affluent than on the more affluent. So we are going to have a more unequal society, which is a very bad thing, but might galvanise support behind the purpose of the state being not just to increase GDP, but to reduce inequality. And can I ask then, we've talked about what governments can do, but I know that a lot of people listening to this podcast, I certainly ask myself this question, what can we as individuals do? There are obviously a number of different things. There's pre-corona, hopefully post-corona, during the crisis. What's your takeaway advice for people when they're looking at what they eat, how they shop, and their general mindset in terms of buying and supplying and providing families with food? At this specific moment, if you are able to think about these issues, I would not think about what you're shopping or what you're eating or what you are doing. I would, there are 1.5 million people have signed up for universal credit in the last four weeks. There are Many, many more people than the than the shield and the vulnerably shielded who are struggling to get food. So I would say if anyone here who is interested in food and wants to get involved, find out in your local area either who are the people who are struggling to shop and shop for them, or who are the charities who are supporting those people, uh, and either volunteer or donate money to them. The single biggest food problem we have at the moment is not overall supply of food. It is the fact that there are millions of people who are struggling to get hold of it. And if there's anything that you, anyone listening to this wants to do, that is the thing that I would suggest they do right now. 
And of course, no one knows when we will come out of this current situation. And I'm sure that that should be the forefront of people's minds, whether we're in this or not. But I know one of the things you've always been passionate about is the nation's diet. What about meat eating? There's a lot of talk about whether we should or how far we should reduce our consumption of meat. Do you think that in general, people should be looking to eat less meat, to consume perhaps no meat at all, to try plant-based or vegetarian diets? Or is that really not the mindset we should be encouraging? Should we be more looking to prioritise eating local and keeping the planet healthy that way? I had sworn I would never. So I, I, the chapter on meat in the diagnosis, the first section of the National Food Strategy, which was going to be published about now, but will probably be published in October, goes into this question in minute detail because not only the level of complexity but the willingness of people willfully to misunderstand what people say on this and the culture war that it's become and the way people treat each other over it I think are really problematic but uh, let me break that rule briefly here. So the first thing I think that we have to realise is that meat and methane is very different from carbon. Methane, although being a much, much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, uh, it breaks down and comes out of the atmosphere uh, after 12 years. And the global warming potential, how powerful different greenhouse gases are, is measured by a thing called GWP. And there are various GWP, so GWP 10, GWP 20, GWP 100, which means how powerful, like what effect does that gas have over a certain number of years? And there is a big battle going on between scientists that, that this overestimates this measure, the potential of methane, and it will make people think we can just focus on meat. And actually meat is, although important, not as important as the current way we current measure, currently measure things suggest. So there's a battle about whether it should be replaced with a measurement called GD, GWP star. So that is the first thing. There's a big battle about how important methane is. Having said that, methane is important. And any global warming scenario that sees us staying under 1.5 degrees needs to include, include a significant reduction in meat eating, ruminant meat eating. Some people say 30%, some people say more. So how and when do we make that reduction? Well, how is very important because, as you will know, as most listeners know, certain ways of producing meat are, are much more harmful than others. So the most harmful thing you can do is chop down rainforest, thereby releasing huge quantities of carbon into the atmosphere to create pasture for meat to eat. The second most harmful thing you can do is to pour loads of nitrogen onto grass and crops to grow food, and that whether that's grass or crops to grow food for, for meat to eat. The, the least uh, carbon methane emitting meat, ironically, is are the feedlots of America because they pump the cows full of hormones and they grow them very fast. So they don't have the chance to emit the methane in that time. But then you have all the questions about animal welfare. So which kind of meat we, re we reduce is important. And that's a difficult question to work through. And I'm thinking about ways of how you work that through. And then finally, there's a timing issue. So because of this 12-month thing, we could start that meat reduction in two, three years 
And it would, as long as we got it down before peak warmth, it would have the same effect on peak temperature. Whereas we need to start the carbon dioxide that's going out to the atmosphere is going out there and staying out there now. Uh, and so there's a timing issue. So that was intentionally trying to be a bit more long-winded to illustrate the complications. But the short answer to your question is, one, we do all need to eat less meat, uh, less particularly less ruminant meat. Two, we need to be very careful about moral attacks on people for how they do this. And we need to be very careful that any incentives that we put on uh, to help people do this don't make the problem worse by shifting the consumption from a kind of ruminant that was less meat, less intensive and uh, to one that's more intensive. And how we go through that journey is, um, is important. And that's something we're considering. The final thing I should say, there'll be people, certain group people who'll be shouting at the radio saying there is also another issue in here, which is that uh, ruminants are increasingly now being used as part of the rotation in traditional systems. So a lot of conventional farmers believe that they cannot no longer use the pesticides, herbicides and nitrates to deliver good crops and that ruminants are an important part of the rotation to improve the soil. Those are actually a very small number. If we only ate those, uh, those ruminants, being, ruminants being used in those rotations, uh, we would have achieved uh, already the reductions required. So we need to eat less meat. It's complicated. And uh, stop being so judgmental. Not you. Not you. No, well, the thing that I can't quite get my head around or work out is in trying to encourage a meat-free diet, a plant-based diet, or even a vegetarian diet, people then often replace meat with products like avocados, almond milk, products containing palm oil, often obtaining those products, whether it's shipping them here or whether it's the way in which they're farmed or produced, is more detrimental to planet health than meat. Or it seems like that's the case. There are downsides of all of those things, but all of those things have a lower carbon footprint than, than the methane. Now, there are, people would argue that, you know, because the meat that I eat yesterday, the methane that, that was in that steak is out of the atmosphere in 12 years, whereas the uh, the carbon from the flying of the avocado is is in the atmosphere pretty much forever. There are people who would argue that those are problematic, but I still think reducing ruminant meat production, try and find the best meat. If you want to eat really good meat, ex-dairy, if you can find it, because it has significantly lower carbon footprint because it's produced all that protein in its milk as well, the same carbon. And then the other form meat, if you can find uh, ruminants that have been used as part of a, a rotation to improve the soil, if you want personally to do something, those are the two things that I would do. There is so much more we could discuss. We've barely got started, but for the sake of these being bite-sized podcasts, you've given us a great deal to think about and to act upon. Come back and talk to us when we're out of isolation, I hope. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Hannah. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>